Welcome to the Denver United Church Sermon of the Week. Here's a message from Pastor Rob Brendel. Good morning. As you've undoubtedly already observed, this is Group Sunday. It's one of two a year when our small groups, we call them United Groups, come down to the ground floor so that new people can get on. Now, people join groups. We have new groups starting all through the year, but this is sort of open enrollment window, if that makes sense. And it's a time that uh, we try to make it as easy and natural as possible to connect to the communities where we believe the discipleship really happens. Relationships grow both uh, within the community and us with Jesus, not so much sitting in a big room staring at a screen, but in living rooms and break rooms and on the sides of mountains and in, in places where we gather with people who are walking the journey in the same stage of life or in the same neighborhood or whatever, and then we are intentional to f- grow in friendship and grow in Christ together. So that's so important to us that twice a year we really emphasize it. A whole bunch of new groups start, and uh, you know how, have you ever had that experience when you walk into like a Bible study and you're wanting to, like they're, they're already sharing their sins? And you're wanting to talk about like how Joe Flacco is going to do. And there's that awkward incongruity. Well, the, the point of Group Connect is to not reboot. The groups continue. And many of them, n- not so much the new ones, they're all getting started uh, from the ground up. But many of them are ongoing and have continuity. But they'll, they'll, like I said, bring the elevator down to the ground floor and make it natural for, for folks to come in and get connected new. And so out there, you'll see a representation of our, some 70 groups, the ones that are open, the ones that are new. And these are leaders that are people just like us, right? They have jobs, they have lives, families, responsibilities, many of them leading for the first time, perhaps feeling ill-equipped, but taking Jesus at his word that he'll equip us if we're willing and faithful. And so they're out there holding up a shingle uh, out of the goodness of their heart and in their spare time saying, hey, we'd like to, to help connect and grow together in Jesus. So what I'm asking is twice a year, we really emphasize this. Today is that time after service, spend a little time getting to know them. The way that Group Connect works, it's kind of like speed dating for small groups, right? So you knock out like four or five weeks of coffee appointments and things like that in one 15-minute time in the lobby. You can meet people and, you know, you can usually detect a lot more of whether this is going to be a a right fit when you're talking to somebody than, you know, if you're emailing back and forth. So get to know a few people, hear what their group's about. Maybe it's a, a connection over your stage of life. Maybe it's your part of town or something else. Maybe the topic, the book, or the portion of scripture they're studying is really where you're at. Maybe it's not an exact fit with what your perfect group would look like. What I'd say is approximate, right? Because if we wait around for perfect community, very often we end up alone. Or maybe approximate and then hang up a shingle yourself in the winter when the next semester comes and do it just like uh, you envision it and then gather others who, uh, who want to connect in that way. But I'm asking four things of you. Here's what it is. First, go out there, visit. There's little sign-up sheets. Sign up. Sign up for one or two groups. Don't sign up for all of them and, and then let down 19 and go to one, but sign up for a couple that maybe resonate with you. And uh, then secondly, when they call you, call them back. Or when they email you, email them back. Respond. What would be more discouraging than to have a list full of people that are sort of in business terms warm leads that said, yeah, we'd like to hear more about what you're doing. And then you email them in crickets. You don't get anything back. So take a minute and respond back. And then thirdly, show up. Take the, take the risk. Inconvenience yourself. Show up. Go to the group. Give it two or three times. And then, and then um, 
Wait a little bit, you know, give it a minute before saying, oh, I don't like this one because, oh, not the right mix, I don't like where, where they're studying in scripture, whatever. Give it a minute or two, and then after three weeks, if it's not the right group, maybe try another one. It's an imperfect process. Relationships are always going to be that way. That's kind of how it works. Our aim is just to simply facilitate or kind of give you a running start in that direction. But it's super important that if we want to grow in Jesus, that we're intentional to grow in community. And so that's what United Groups are all about. So we'll get out of service a little bit early, give you plenty of time. And then if for no other reason, because of the smell of bacon, did anyone walk into church and smell bacon and just involuntarily smile? Because here's the thing, not unlike Jesus, bacon doeth all things well. I mean, like who is ever like bacon? Oh, I hate this church. Nobody. It's like, so... That was a stroke of pure genius, whoever decided to, the, to employ the tactic of shamelessly frying bacon in the church lobby. I applaud you. <laughs> All right, you ready to study the word? Should we start for the sake of time with a George prayer? Should we do that? All right, bow your heads and close your eyes, please. God, thank you for your word. Amen. All right, does that sound like George? <laughs> Have you noticed that in every generation, there are some, a few people, champions, uh, heroes, leaders who go on to live beyond their time and they become legends. And then of those legends, there's a handful who transcend even that category and they, what they stood for, their signature move or whatever, they become icons. Like, um... Maybe you weren't alive for this, but I, I say moonwalk and you think, right? Or, or uh, switch to football, like uh, football guys or gals. Uh, winning isn't everything. It's the only thing, said Vince Lombardi, for whom the trophy is named, right? Or if you're a basketball person, uh, whose nickname is the logo? Jerry West, because literally the NBA logo is him. Like, that's his profile dribbling the ball, right? There are a few leaders or heroes or champions who become icons and they stand for something. Like Michael Jordan doing this, you know, it's an icon, right? Well, there is a sort of upper echelon of the Bible's Hall of Fame. There are a few leaders that transcend, and it's hard to think of them as humans because they have like cathedrals named them. So Paul, the Apostle Paul is one of these. The, the Cathedral of St. Paul is one of the most beautiful and architecturally significant structures in the history of the world. It's like a museum. It's priceless in itself as a work of art. Not to be outdone, we in America created St. Paul's Cathedral, not to be confused with the Cathedral of St. Paul, also beautiful, a little smaller, and a whole city got named after it. And then in every major metro area in America, Denver has one, there's a St. Paul Street, right? Anyone live on St. Paul Street over here in like Bonnie Bray? The Apostle Paul is such an icon that it's hard to remember that he was a guy who had a backstory. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, is his origin story. We're continuing in a series on the book of Acts. This is one of our Through the Bible series. We have three types of ways we study the scripture, purely topical, where we look at an issue of singular significance 
to the body of Christ like last fall when we looked at the series called One and the important um, issue to the human race and Denver in the 21st century and really to the church of racial unity and disharmony and what does the gospel ask of us in that tender and hugely significant subject. And so we'd look at a variety of scriptures on one topic, right? Or we'll do a, a hybrid thematic scripture study. Like when we went through the book of Daniel and talked about doing the stuff of the world 10 times better than the world does it. So that's in imbuing or recognizing the, the vocational holiness of all of our work, right? That there is theological significance, there's kingdom impact to our work, whatever it is that we do. So that would be like a thematic scripture study. And then the third type of way that we study the word is pure text. So it's expository. We just simply look at the scripture and let the passage yield the theme and kind of go with what's there. And right now we're in one of those series. We call those through the Bible series and we're in the book of Acts. Acts is long and so we're starting in the second half purely because the first half gets a lot more airtime in the church for good reason. Um, important stuff there. But the second half, very relevant to us. It's the gospel penetrating and then transforming secular um, metropolitan, really cosmopolitan cities and th them being the beginning of the church. Now, those cities were pre-Christian, Denver is post-Christian, but it plays very much the same. And so astoundingly relevant to where we are, living on mission as we do here in this city. And so we're looking through the book of Acts and we're inviting you, and I really want to encourage you in this, to read along. And if, if you're a regular Bible reader and you got, you're somewhere else in the Bible, go on with it. But if you've occasionally read the Bible or you own one, but you haven't really been able to get traction in reading it regularly, maybe you started and Genesis was interesting enough, but then you got to Exodus and you died... It makes total sense. And so what we're doing is giving you an, a sensible place to start. Read along. Acts has 28 chapters. That's four, seven chapter weeks, right? With a couple of days for, oops, I got behind or I skipped one. And then you got September. If you're like, yeah, but we're already in the middle of September and I haven't started, we're in like a chapter and a half. It won't kill you. Or go into October. You know, it's not going anywhere. Um, but I want to challenge you. If you're not a regular Bible reader, Read a chapter a day for the month of September or as long as it takes you to read through Acts. It's, it's engaging. It's a narrative format of scripture. So it's going to be, it's going to read like a story and it, we won't cover everything that you read, but a lot of it, once you get to the second half, will correspond with what we're talking about in services. And it takes a month really to break a habit or to form a new one. And so take a month, read a chapter a day. We have little bookmarks back there. If you didn't get one last week, you can, you can grab one at, at uh, DU Central or from the ushers on your way out that just have Acts broken up into, into a basic reading plan. You can stick it in your Bible to remind you and try a chapter a day reading through Acts together uh, as we enter this fall. Sound good? All right, so there we go. Acts 9 is where we are this morning. In verse 1, the Bible teaches, Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. Last week, Pastor Daniel did a great job of introducing the series, framing Acts, and then launching in with what uh, theologians call the diaspora, the dispersion, which started with the persecution that broke out in Acts chapter 8 with the martyrdom of Stephen. And from that point on, some key leaders of the opposition to this groundswell movement called Christianity, or what they called the way, 
became violent in their response. This Saul was one of those people. He went to the high priest and requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus. That's one of the outer ring cities where the people were fleeing from the crackdown in Jerusalem. Asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of this way that he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Well, as many of you know, this villain, Saul, goes on to become the apostle Paul for whom the cathedrals are named. And what we get here is a glimpse of his backstory. And it's astounding because before Paul was a hero, he was a bad guy. He wasn't just a no-namer. He didn't rise out of the ashes of obscurity. He was a full-on bad guy in the story. It has recently come to my attention that not everyone likes Star Wars. <laughs> it was actually a couple years ago. Um, Pastor Darius and I were having lunch, and I, I started to make a point with the ubiquitously relevant Star Wars reference. There's no spiritual truth that can't be illustrated by Star Wars. And, um, and I was like, you know, like when Luke flew out of the death, and he's like, bro, let me just jump in. Black people don't like Star Wars as much. I was like, what? What? I was like, I'm like, doesn't that, what does that have to do with it? Does that have to do with race? I'm like, he's like, well, it's just not as much a part. I mean, I'm sure there are some that do, but it's not as much a part of our like, and he said it so perfectly, you know? It's not as much a part of our like heritage and, and narrative and and it's not maybe as relevant to black people. I'm like, it's relevant to humans. It's relevant to everybody. I'm like, it's like what are you talking about? Darth Vader's black? And he's like, there's a white guy in there wearing a black suit. And he's the bad guy. I'm like, but his, James Earl Jones is his voice. That has to count. And I was like, what about Lando Calrissian? He's like, he's the one that sold out Han Solo to the bad guy. So he's the traitor. So pretty much the, your blackness is the bad guy, the archvillain and the traitor. I'm like, oh. Yeah, just discovering more of my own implicit bias, right? But then I, I was even further crestfallen. We're having dinner with our friends, the Lazoyas, the other night, and, and I started to say something about Star Wars, and he's like, bro, I have to tell you, my family, like, Star Wars wasn't really, like, a thing. I'm like, what? You don't like Star Wars? He's like, yeah, it's not as much of a part of the Hispanic narrative. I'm like, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> So in the interest of preserving our church's value for unity across the spectrum, I'm going to tell you a Star Wars story anyway <laughs> to bind us together. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm a nerd. It's like, so for, the, for those who have ears to hear, let them hear. All right. I, the prequels got a bad rap. And admittedly, they weren't great, right? I mean, you had the, the Hayden Christensen forgetting to learn how to act in acting school. You had the, the contrived love story. You had the whole underwater thing, and then Jar Jar was certainly unfortunate. But 
still, the concept to me is redemptive. Like, I love, the ba- I love a good backstory. I loved feeling empathy for the, the arch-villain Darth Vader because he was this sweet fatherless kid who was looking for love and then, you know, he didn't get his character formed real well and then the dark side got involved and he was phenomenally gifted and bam, you get the enemy of the universe, right? Paul's backstory is part and parcel to his contribution. We can't pick and choose the part of the narrative. Verse three, as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around Saul and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The uncomfortable reality that you cannot get around reading this passage is that Jesus chose Saul intentionally. He handpicked him and Saul was a total mess. It wasn't like he, would, he looked for Thor, but he was busy saving another galaxy. So he was like, uh, all right, Saul will do. I mean, at least he's a decent communicator and he's kind of smart. We'll work it out from there. No, he picked him. He selected him from his generation. And this is the big idea of this passage. Jesus builds his church on broken people like you and me. Jesus builds his church on broken people, not perfect people, not people that didn't mess it up in the back, in the backstory but people precisely who did. Look at the hall of fame of the Bible. Jacob, the deceiver. Moses, who ran from God and his past. David, who at the height of his influence betrayed his marriage covenant and his family. Peter, who could not stop putting his foot in his mouth and then at the decisive moment turned his back on his Lord. Or James and John, the lovable disciples who at the 11th hour on the way to the, to the final hour, Jerusalem and the cross, said of the unrepentant Samaritan village, should we call down fire from heaven and incinerate them? Damaged, misguided, errant, and repentant men and women. That's who God built the whole thing on. I look at my own backstory, and I have to tell you that at times when I'm alone with my thoughts, I wonder, God, couldn't you have found somebody better to do this, somebody more suited for the job? I mean, I spent my entire formative years not speaking emotion and thinking that it's weak and dirty to have feelings. The only emotional expression that all of my emotional experience would come out the valve was anger and I didn't even own that. And then I'd wonder why people would go away or distance. And I'm supposed to shepherd the flock entrusted in my care? Surely there's somebody more well-adjusted for this role. But see, it is the work of God in our brokenness. It's precisely our backstory that Jesus chooses in building his church. Verse 10, there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas 
when you get there, ask for a man named Tarsus, from Tarsus rather, named Saul. He's praying to me right now. I've shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. Ananias is like, I know who Saul is, but Lord, exclaimed Ananias. He's all calm up until this point. But Lord, I've heard many people talk about this guy, the terrible things he's done to the believers in Jerusalem. Are you kidding me? He's authorized by the leading priests to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to Gentiles and kings. What's fascinating about this portion of this passage to me is that Ananias finds it perfectly normal for Jesus to be speaking to him, like verbally. He's perfectly calm about that, right? Like if I... If, if, if Jesus, like the ghost of Jesus appears in my room and is talking to me, I'd like call up Pastor George. I'm like, bro, Jesus is talking to me. And he'd be like, I know, brother, I'm reading the word and it's really coming alive. I'm like, no, Jesus is talking to me. I'd be exclaiming. But Ananias is like, oh, yes, Lord. What can I do for you, ghost of Jesus in my room? Or whatever was happening. He's perfectly calm about that point being he's a mature believer. But then when the apparition of Jesus says, you're supposed to go to Saul, he freaks out. He exclaims, Lord, do you know who this guy is and what he's been do doing? Clearly, God knew what he was doing. He didn't settle for Saul. He chose him. He handpicked him. And Ananias asks the question we must ask. And that is, why? Why? Last week, Pastor Daniel expertly pointed out one of the plot tropes in movies that we love, you know, where there's an outbreak of a virus that's, that rapidly mutates and then zombies take over the world. Well, it got me to thinking, there's another plot trope that I find amusing. And that is that, you know, there's an enemy so dangerous and so evil that only a criminal can catch him. Wait, what? What kind of, that's stupid. Why, if, if the enemy's that evil and that dangerous, why do we want to send someone else who's inclined toward evil after him? That makes no sense. But how many movies are built on that ridiculous premise? Is that what's going on here? God's like, it takes a really jacked up person to build this thing I call church. <laughs> like, what is going on? Verse 20, immediately, Saul began preaching about Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is indeed the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. And I bet they were, because like last week, he was preaching that this whole thing is a sham, and you all are propagating a lie, and you're overthrowing goodness, order, religion, and government. And he was cracking the whip on him. And now he's preaching that Jesus is indeed Lord. And of course they were amazed. Isn't this the same man, they said, who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem? And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them to chains, in chains to the leading priests? So Saul's preaching became more and more powerful. 
And here's the bottom line of this passage. Your story is your qualification for service. Your story is your qualification for service. See, it was the very fact that Saul was known to have been so jacked up and doing such antisocial evil and anti-Christian things that made people take notice in amazement and involuntarily listen to what he was saying. His preaching became more and more powerful, not in spite of his backstory, but precisely because of it. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, verse 26, he tried to meet with the believers. So he left Damascus and goes to the mothership, and they're afraid, they're afraid of him. They were all afraid. They didn't believe that he had truly become a believer. He's like doing the secret knock to get into the clubhouse, and they're like, um, nothing to see here. We're just doing our fantasy draft. And, and Saul's like, no, guys, I'm with you. I want in. They're like, you want in the fantasy league? And he's like, no, no, I'm like a Christian too. And they're like, we don't know what you're talking about. He's like, no, seriously, I know, but like, I'm one of you now. They didn't even believe him. And why would they? They thought he was there to arrest them. It took Barnabas, his boy from Damascus, to come down and vouch for him and tell the apostles that he had seen himself what God had done, that Saul saw the Lord, the Lord spoke to him, and he also told them that Saul had been preaching boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. So finally, they're like, um, okay. And Saul stayed on with the apostles. And then he went all around Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. I think we tend to think our past gets washed away with our sins. Do you know what I mean by that? And there's reason for that confusion because the scriptures teach that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed my sins from me. In fact, it says that he has thrown our sins into the sea of forgetfulness. And these are cherished verses, and it's good that some of you know them because this is the power of the cross, that God doesn't just minimize our sin and kind of cover it over. He eradicates it. Perfect justice washes the sin away. But in the narrative of our salvation, we sometimes allow ourselves to become confused that when God washed away our sins, our backstory too got washed away. Right? That those broken things we did, those horrible things that were done to us, the ways we hurt people that we're so ashamed of that keep us up at night, those just got thrown into the sea of forgetfulness too. And in being born again, it's extra good news because we sort of tell ourselves, my life starts now, which on a theological level is true, but we're still a product of all that we've seen, done, and had done to us. It doesn't go away. And we disserve ourselves. Why do we do that? Why do we allow those two ideas to become confused? The idea that our sin is washed away with this false notion that our whole past is thrown into the sea of forgetfulness. Well, I think it's a learned behavior. I don't think it comes from within. I think it comes from the community around us. When you spend enough time around people that act like 
they don't have a backstory and they've been this good their whole life and like they got it all figured out. You learn after once or twice of saying, oh man, I was, you know, nine months ago, I was high on heroin. And they're like, what? You learn that doesn't play here. So you learn to fake it. And what we, what we participate in is a culture of pretense where we're all pretending to not be the way we really were or are under a banner of authenticity. So we say, come into our church. It's all about authentic. It's so real. We're all um, after relationships, but we're trying to create relationships between mannequins. And so has anyone been to this church where everyone acts like they got it all together? but you, and so you're like, I guess I better figure out how to have it all together. And so we just sort of tell ourselves, we're not gonna lie, we don't wanna participate in something that's a sham, so what do we do? We create a a flimsy theology that says, all that got washed away, so it's just not me. And involuntarily, we participate in and, and promulgate a culture of pretense that teaches us and others that to be a real Christian is to be a fake human. Brene Brown wrote, owning our story can be hard, but not nearly as difficult as spending our lives running from it. Embracing our vulnerabilities is risky, but not nearly as dangerous as giving up on love and belonging and joy, the experiences that make us the most vulnerable. Only when we are brave enough to explore the darkness will we discover the infinite power of our light. See, Christ in you is the hope of glory, not you having had it all together all along. The word of God teaches that God's power is perfected, not in our pseudo strength, but what? In our weakness. So he says, I'll glory all the more in my weaknesses, in my brokenness, in the shambles of my backstory. Because when I am weak, then I am strong. Jesus is demonstrated and his glory is pronounced in the context of my own brokenness. This was the apostle Paul's power. His story not his resume, qualified him for service. It was the very fact that people were amazed not by the smoothness or the persuasiveness of his words, not by the irrefutability of his logic or the command of his presence. They were amazed because this was the dude who was going 180 degrees the opposite direction two weeks ago. And then he met Jesus, and now he's charging hard toward heaven. His qualification for service in the kingdom of God was his backstory, and so is it for you and me. Your brokenness, what you've lived through, what God is redeeming you from, this is what makes you authentically human and testifies to Jesus transforming, healing, renewing love. And so what a lie we get hindered by that, oh man, I've, I've heard it my whole ministry life for 20 years. Oh, I'm not nearly ready for that. 
you know, there's this sense that the professionals really should do the service for the kingdom because you must have that stuff figured out or probably didn't do what I did. I came from the same broken, messed up, call and wrong right backstory as you, just a different variation on the same theme. Now, some of our stories had more consequences than others. Maybe someone got addicted. Maybe someone was in prison. But you know what? It's all brokenness. It's all sin. It's all what falls short of the glory of God and separates us from our true identity as sons and daughters of the king. Jesus restored us not to make that stuff go away, but to renew us to relationship with our creator and father such that all that we've come through doesn't subtract from, but rather adds to the glory of God. Because what those people out there need to know is that there is real, powerful, actionable love. And your life shines like a billboard for that truth. In Philippians 3, years later, decades later, this isn't the Apostle Paul like just having wiped out the young Jedi-lings and killed, you know, fought Obi-Wan and then got reconstructed. This is like, he's figured it out. He's full-on Darth Vader mode, except it's kind of reversed, right? Because Paul went from bad to good and Anakin went from good to, never mind. <laughs> he's like the Apostle Paul in full force at this point. And he's writing to one of the churches that he founded in a city not so different from ours. And in Philippians 3, he says, we rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We don't rely on the goods we've got. We don't rely on how put together we can present ourselves. We rely on what Jesus did in the midst of our brokenness. We put no confidence in human effort. Though I could have had confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I've got even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old in his religious order. That was a big deal, kind of pedigreed. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel. I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin, which puts him first among equals. I was a real Hebrew if ever there was one. I was a member of the Pharisees. Those are like the Bible-believing Christians of the Jewish day, right? Those are like the ones that have quiet times and, and go to small groups and stuff. I was one of them. I like did the thing, man. They demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so fired up for the thing that I did what the, 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 the really A-listers a did. I persecuted this church thing that was opposing the work of God. You know. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the letter of the law without fault. Super religious. And I once thought these things were valuable. But now I consider them worthless. What would be my credential? What would make us think we have something of value to serve God's people and to establish his kingdom in this city? I realized it's worthless. And the reason is because what Christ Jesus has done in me, the restoration of my soul, the filling in and healing of my backstory. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it as garbage so that I could gain Christ. For his sake, I've discarded everything else. Everything that the people who want to feel qualified for service would call qualifications. 
and not just left it aside. I consider it as trash so that I could gain Christ. It's your story that qualifies you for service. And so what does this passage teach us to do? What does this look like tomorrow morning at work and beyond? Well, I think, number one, it asks us to engage our story. Too long have we settled for the flimsy, pseudo-spiritual idea that our past is washed away. You're going to carry it with you. And if we don't invite Jesus in to heal it, it's going to define you. And so engage your story. You're like, man, but I don't want to go back there. I've spent years building up a wall and walling that thing off and learning to live a good life. The problem is it's, it's seeping into the soil under the wall and it's growing funky fruit in your life. It's like toxicity that's leached into the soil and Jesus cares about it. I'm sorry that you've had the impression that we church leaders have suggested or outright taught that you're supposed to have it together and the parts that don't fit with that narrative you should pretend like they don't exist engage your story go there and where do we begin we begin by naming it the brokenness that which was done to us and inviting Jesus into it and that which we did out of our own brokenness and then repenting of it. See, the power of Paul's story is the dramatic repentance. It's that he was going this way and now he's going that way. And repentance isn't just, I'm sorry, God. Repentance literally means to turn. It's a changing of direction. And even if our life has kind of banked that turn over the last decade or so, there is a decision that says, that which was me, I turn from that and I repent of that. Repentance invites Jesus in to start renewing you. The word of God teaches, he makes me lie down in green pastures. This is what I think happens when we give our hearts to Jesus. He leads me beside still waters. He doesn't run us at the flagpole. He doesn't make us whip ourselves. He doesn't force us to do some sort of spiritual two-a-days for penance. He leads us gently. He brings us to a restful place. And it says, he restoreth my soul. That's what Jesus does. He'll restore your soul. He doesn't make it go away. He doesn't throw it into the sea of forgetfulness. He restores it. And what was broken, he brings healing to. And what was weakness, he makes into strength. That strength qualifies you for service in his kingdom. And don't stop with the invitation. Having invited Jesus in, ask him into every dark corner. Invite him into every crevice. Jesus said, whatever was whispered in the shadows will be shouted from the rooftops. Bring it to light. I don't think that means God's going to embarrass you in front of everybody. That doesn't seem consistent with his character, does it? It says God's way is to take stuff that you've been taught is so shameful that if anybody knew, they'd reject you. They wouldn't want anything to do with you. And bring that into Jesus' glorious light and let him redeem it. 
and turn it into strength for you and for others. And then from that stance of strength, share yourself. Share your story courageously. I love how Paul goes back and long since not that guy, he still talks about it. He still ministers decades later when he's starting to get cathedrals named after him, like Philippians 3. He's still ministering out of that brokenness that Jesus healed. And he said, all of the stuff that we think makes us qualified, all of the things that we think make us a big deal, that stuff's trash compared to Jesus' work restoring my soul. And share out of that. Once you bring it into the light, you realize the shame that you felt over the stuff you've walled up years or decades ago. It was a phantom shame. It's not real. The enemy lied to you. He traffics in deception. And he made you think, if only people knew. So you never told anyone. And you lived buried under that shame or trying to outperform the mistakes and violations of your past. If I can religiously outrun them, then they won't have power over me. But it's a phantom power. See, when you bring them into the light and Jesus restores them, they lose their power. They shrivel into nothing. And you're like, oh, that's all they are? And then there's no power there. There's no shame there. You bring them out. And you know what they are? They're a training aid. And they point to Jesus' glory. And people like you more, not less, when you share because they realize they're not the only broken one. And that's how vulnerability creates community and advances the kingdom of God. So let the origin story of this great icon inspire us because Paul's greatness wasn't in his rhetoric. It wasn't in his oration or his intellect. It was in his embrace of his brokenness. And I think that's God's way for us. Amen. All right, let's get out of here. We're going to go look at some groups. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for your goodness and mercy, your faithfulness and favor. Thank you for the word of God that is alive and active. And Lord, if anything I said contradicts the counsel of your word, cause it just to fall to the ground. And whatever was of you or highlights your word, would you cause it to sink deep and stick close and change us to be more like Jesus? We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you've been encouraged and inspired. For more information or to submit a prayer request, please go to denverunited.com.